Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat, for this time to come together to worship in your presence and to interact as a community with your word and uh, in worship before you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you speak directly into our hearts and our lives, that it be your word spoken, your voice received, and your heart felt today, that nothing of me be involved except that which you have already ordained for this purpose. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray, and everyone says... Amen and amen. All right, so this morning we are in uh, Parsha Vayichi, the final Parsha of Bereshit, of Genesis, uh, and it comes from Genesis 40, uh, 47, 28 through the end of chapter 50. This is a really neat Parsha because we see a lot going on in it, particularly with uh, Jacob blessing uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of Joseph, and they become his sons uh, for all intents and purposes. Uh, and in essence, if we really pay attention to it, it's really neat because when we go through the blessings over Israel, we realize, remember Reuben was the firstborn of, uh, of, of Jacob, and Reuben uh, had relations of some sorts with uh, one of Jacob's uh, concubines, and so in, in doing so, he disgraced his father and kind of walked himself out of the Bechor, the, the rights of Bechor, the rights of, of the firstborn. Uh, and so the, the, the rights of the firstborn actually kind of got divvied up among ultimately three different uh, people, three different sons of Israel and three uh, tribes overall. So first is the priesthood, because the firstborn was to be the priest of the family. So the priesthood actually went to Levi instead of to Reuben. So Reuben uh, forfeited that and went to Levi, and Levi and his descendants became the priesthood, and from Levi comes Aharon and the Kohanim, the high priests. Uh, and then the actual right of firstborn to leadership over the family uh, goes to Judah. And so we see in Jacob blessing Judah that he says that kings will come forth and the scepter will not leave Judah's hand until Shiloh or Messiah comes. Uh, and so we see that that kingship authority of the firstborn, that, that leadership authority of the firstborn of the family transposes from Reuben over to Judah. And then last is the actual right to Bechor, which is the, the double inheritance, the double portion. And that double portion ends up transferring to Joseph because both of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, become sons of Jacob, and he blesses each of them equally as he does with the other sons of Jacob, the other sons of Israel. And so in such, he actually takes a double portion of the blessing and the inheritance, and he puts it upon Joseph and his sons rather than upon Reuben, who was the actual official Bechor, the, the firstborn. So we see some of these things happening. We see some of the, the blessings and things that are spoken over the sons of Israel and, and ultimately the tribes of Israel as they go on, uh, and, and things we see some messianic prophecy in here, particularly that in regards to Judah and the, the uh, Melech Mashiach, the King Messiah coming forth from Judah, the tribe of Judah, uh, and so on. But I actually want to focus very specifically on two things in this Parsha, and, and I believe that uh, especially in and I, I think it's, it's pertinent at this point in time, because not just because of what's happening prophetically and, and such, and, 
uh, around the world, not just because of the climate that we're in uh, around the world politically and socioeconomically and so on, but particularly because we're getting ready to start a new year on the Gregorian calendar. And you know, most of us in America, you know, the, the running theme is a New Year's resolution. And what are we going to do to make ourselves better this year? And the reality is, is we're going to make a resolution and you know, three days later we'll forget about it and never change anything uh, and end up not being better than we were in the first place. Um, but for us as believers going into this new year, I think it's important for us to look at these two particular uh, uh, parts of this Parsha, which are one cohesive thought and what it means for us as believers moving forward in this time frame uh, as we move into this new year. So if you have your scriptures, open up to Genesis chapter 47, beginning with verse 28. This is the very beginning of the Parsha. It says, Now Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. As the time of Israel's death drew near, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please put your hand under my thigh and show me faithfulness, faithful kindness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. When I lie down with my fathers, you must carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. So he said, I myself would do according to your word. Swear to me, he said. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed down and worship on the head of his staff. I think it's important here when we look at Jacob and we look at the life that Jacob's led and we look at the ups and downs, the turmoil, the trials, and so on, many of which were his own causing. Uh, but we see all these things. We see the separation that, that he had from the, the promised land, uh, Israel, the land of Canaan, as it were, at that time. We see the separation that he had for you know, 20 years because of him running from Esau and spending time in Laban's house and getting tricked over and over and over again and spends 20 years separated from the promised land. And he goes back to the promised land. And shortly after he goes back to the promised land, his, uh, uh, or on the way to the promised land, the, the wife that he loved most dies in childbirth birth uh, and everything going on there. Joseph gets sold into slavery, and it's just one thing after another, after another, after another for him. But he's got this yearning finally after everything that went on with Esau and 20 years separated from the land. He's got this yearning for the promised land. He's got a vision for the promised land and for the fulfillment of God's promises to his people, Israel. And so as we look at this and we go forward, we realize that even now, Jacob is removed again. He spent 17 years, the last 17 years of his life in Egypt. And so it's great that he was reunited with Joseph and he got to have that interaction again for 17 years, but he spent 17 years, the last 17 years of his life removed from the promised land, removed from the fulfillment of the promises of God. And he never got to see the land that was promised to him as an inheritance eternally for his descendants. He never got to see his descendants lay claim to that land officially. And he lived his entire life while he was in the promised land, much like his forefather Abraham and Isaac as a foreigner in a foreign land. And he died as a foreigner in another foreign land in the land of Egypt. And so we see this yearning, this burden on his heart for the promised land, for returning back to the promises of God and the faithfulness of God in the promised land, even if that meant not making that return till after he died. And he calls Joseph in. He says, listen, I'm not far from, from dying. I, I, I don't have long left here. Uh, I need you to promise me. And, and, and you ever wonder why he chose Joseph out of all of them? Like, why did he not choose Reuben? Why did he not choose uh, Judah to talk to? Why did he not choose one of the other sons to take him back to this promised land? He chose Joseph because Joseph sat on the throne of Pharaoh. Joseph actually had the power to be able to leave and take him back and to be able to see it happen because otherwise, otherwise he would have been stuck in 
uh, Mitzrayim and the land of Egypt. He wouldn't have been able to leave because none of the others had the power for that to occur because they had now been adopted into, if you would, the people of Egypt. And so he asks Joseph because Joseph has the power to make this happen and not only the power to make it happen, but the influence for it to be this big thing to make sure it actually happens and follows through. So Joseph says, I swear I will do this. We get to the, the end of, Joseph, of Jacob's life. Jacob dies. And Joseph, sure enough, does exactly what he says. He goes to Pharaoh and says, listen, I need you to let me go for a couple of days. I've got to take me and my brothers, my father, back to our land and, and Canaan, back to our family's land uh, at the fields of Machpelah, uh, and, and bury my father there with his fathers and his mother's uh, in our, our own family burial site. And so uh, Pharaoh goes, you know what? Cool. Not only that, I want you to go and to take him, but I want all of these people from my own household and my own ministry to go with you, to support you on this journey and to carry the, the, the load and so on. And so they all go and they have a seven-day period of mourning for Jacob's life. And Joseph takes Jacob, as he promised, back to the promised land and buries him there with his forefathers. Then we go forward to uh, chapter 50, verse 24. And we pick up here, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely take notice of you and will bring you up from this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph bade Israel's sons swear an oath, when God takes notice of you, you will bring my bones up from here. So Joseph died at 110 years. And they embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And if we go back just a few verses, what we notice is that after they buried Jacob, the brothers of Joseph immediately became afraid that now that Jacob was going to die, that Joseph was going to kill them, that he was going to take revenge on them. And he, they cry out and they try to trick him. They come and say, hey, our father told us to come talk to you when he was dead and let you know conveniently when he wasn't around to support what they said, to substantiate the argument. They come, hey, you know, Pop said when he died to come talk to you and tell you that he wants you to promise you're never going to harm us. And, and Joseph's heart breaks and he goes, all this time you've been here. And you don't realize that I love you and I have forgiven you. And he says, uh, verse, uh, verse 19, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid for I am in the place of God. Uh, for am I in the place of God? Questioning it. Yes, you yourselves planned evil against me. God planned it for good in order to bring about what is this day to preserve the lives of many people. So now don't be afraid. I myself will provide food for you and your little ones. So we, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. And then the next thing that we read is about Joseph's death uh, shortly thereafter. And he tells his brothers, listen, when the Lord remembers you and takes you out of this land in this great victorious exodus, you must take my bones with you. Do not let me stay for eternity here in the land of Israel. My home is back in Israel in the land of Israel with my forefathers. And so we see this yearning, even in Joseph, who now has had a great extensive time of his life removed from the promised land. He's 110 when he dies. He was 17 when he was sold into slavery. A very long portion of his life was outside of the promised land, and yet his heart yearned to return to the promises of God, to return to the promised land itself. And he made his brothers swear to him that they would 
take him with them when they were freed. And we see as we move into Exodus, which we will next week, that when Israel does in fact leave Egypt and this mass exodus and this glorious, miraculous, divine hand encounter with the presence of the Lord as he leads them out and brings them to safety in spite of everything Egypt tried to do uh, and leads them out of slavery, that they do in fact take his coffin with his bones and carry it all the way back to the promised land with them. And they bury him in the land of Shechem, the, the city of Shechem, which is, oddly enough, the same city he was sold to slavery in. His brothers sold him in Shechem to, to the Ishmaelites for, to, to go into slavery. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very you know, popular city in Israel's history for all kinds of bad things, yet there's redemption of that error when he returned to the promised land, and the very place he was cast out of the land is the very place he resides for eternity, uh, or you know, until eternity, I guess is more accurate, uh, in the land of Israel. And conveniently enough, Shechem is very close to the fields of Machpelah. As a matter of fact, Machpelah is right around there. And so he was buried. He wasn't buried in the cave of Machpelah with his father, but he was in fact buried relatively close to his forefathers, which is, is interesting. And so as I looked at this and I was digging through the Parsha, I really felt that, uh, that this was something that just popped to me. Uh, you know, every year we read through the Parsha and it's a, it's a living word. And so there's always something new the Lord is revealing. Uh, and, and this just really spoke out in my heart, uh, this call that the Lord has on our hearts to yearn for the promises of God, to yearn for a restoration within the promises of God. Not that God's promises need a restoration, but we need to be restored in his promises. Uh, and so as believers, I think a lot of times we, we lose sight of the fact that we so we live through our lives, we make decisions, we do things, we harm people, we are harmed by people. We do all these things, and, and in essence, we end up putting ourselves in this mentality of galut, which is a Hebrew word for diaspora, for being out of the promised land. And so right now, the majority of the Jewish world is in, in galut, it's in the, the diaspora, it's outside of the promised land. Uh, and in this point in time, Joseph obviously was, and Jacob died in, in galut outside the promised land. Uh, and so we stand here today in Alabama, which is very clearly not the promised land, uh, ourselves in, in the Galut, in the diaspora, outside of the promised land. We have not gone back to the physical promises of God in as Israel permanently, um, but we do know the days will come when all will be reestablished in, in, in the promised land, in particular the new heaven, new Jerusalem, uh, when it descends upon the earth and we spend eternity around the throne of God. And so all of his creation who are bought by the blood of lamb will be restored there. And it's a beautiful and powerful image, but how often do we truly yearn for a return to those promises. How often do we truly contemplate this mentality? Because we find ourselves often stuck in this uh, mentality. I think it's interesting that, that when Lynn prayed earlier, uh, he, was, he was praying for, uh, for us to find healing in the hurts and the, the, the pains and anguish that we've experienced and, and past problems. And during our prayer time this morning, uh, the Lord put on my heart to pray as a Messianic movement. Often a lot of people in the Messianic Jewish movement have uh, anger, uh, un, unsettled anger in their hearts towards, you know, whether the church or, or traditional Judaism or whatever for being lied to all those years. You know, nobody ever told me the Shabbat still mattered. And all of a sudden I find out and, and I cannot believe they lied to me for all those years. Or, or as, as Jewish people, we come to find Messiah and, oh, I can't believe that the rabbis kept me from the promised Jewish for all these years. And we have this anger. And what's interesting is that this anger and this hatred ends up taking up space in our lives and in our hearts and not leaving enough room for the fullness of the presence of God in our lives, which is ultimately the promise that we are to be restored in. Like, the promised land 
There's definitely something about being there, and I hope you get to go with us later this year, uh, or next year. I mean, there's definitely something to being there, and, and there's this joy when you land on the ground, and you see uh, as, as Jewish people making Aliyah first land, come off of the LL flights, and they climb down the steps, and they all fall and kiss the tarmac, because they finally returned to the dirt that was for, promised to our forefathers, and there's something about being there, but there's something about being in the spiritual exile as well, about being in the spiritual land of Israel which you and I are to be in constantly because we are bought by the blood of the Lamb. We are heirs to the kingdom of God and we are to live in the promises of God, right? This is who we are. This is what's given to us. We go forward to 1 Peter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. In his great mercy, he calls us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Messiah Yeshua from the dead. And, and I think far too often we forget that hope is a part of our faith. We get hung up in the dread and the despair of the world around us or the pain and anguish that others have caused us and so on and so forth. We forget about the hope. And the hope is what we're supposed to cleave to and yearn for. Verse 4, an incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance has been reserved for you where? Not here, in heaven. In heaven. We focus on problems here on earth. But the incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that is reserved for us is in heaven, not here. So we should be living every day, cleaving to the hope of what is awaiting us in heaven. Verse 5, but trusting you are being protected by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, great, uh, in this greatly, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. These trials are so that the true metal of your faith, far more valuable than gold, which perishes through refined fire, may come to light and praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Messiah Yeshua. Now, if that didn't just step on your toes, kick you below the belt, get your attention, take the wind out of you, you need to reread those words. Because most of us far too often find ourselves in the trials forgetting about the hope. We find ourselves in the trials struggling with the here and now and everything going on and we forget that those trials, as Peter's telling us here, those trials are there specifically so that the true metal of our faith may come to light and praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Messiah Yeshua. When you're walking in trials of this world, do people see the true glory of faith and hope in Messiah Yeshua. Do people see the light of praise and glory and honor revealed through your life for who Messiah Yeshua is? I've talked about this a lot lately, this idea that as believers we're the most depressed and angry people in the world. And believe it or not, the outside world, they do see it. They see how angry we are. And we talk about, hey, if you just accept Messiah, you have eternal peace. There's this peace that surpasses all understanding that takes over you. And they're looking at us going, but you haven't found it. How are you going to lead me to it? But it's because we get hung up in those trials. We get hung up in the fact that we're in spiritual Mitzrayim in Egypt and that Galut separated from the promises, this spiritual eternal promises of the Lord. And we're waiting for that to come, and we must await in faithfulness and hope of what he's doing. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you trust in him and are filled with a joy that is glorious beyond words, re receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Even though you do not see him, 
you are filled with joy that is glorious beyond words. Listen, for 2,000 years, the body Messiah has looked at the world around us and gone, this is the longest trial that anybody's ever experienced in our lives. In the history of humanity, we've been waiting for the return of Messiah, and he hasn't come yet, and we're still here suffering. And the world around us is going, where's the joy that you're supposed to have? Where's the peace that surpasses all understanding that you're supposed to have? And Messiah is looking at us going, where is the love for me that you're supposed to have that others may see me in you? And we continue to verse 13, and he goes on to say, so brace your minds for action. Keep your balance and set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. Like obedient children, do not be shaped by the cravings you had formerly in your ignorance. Instead, just like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in everything you do, for it is written, Kedoshim you shall be, for I am Kadosh. Holy ones you should be, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Part of holy living, part of being Kedoshim, holy ones, is to live in the joy of Messiah to live in the hope of the everlasting that is to come no matter what trials we face here and now. And what's interesting is when we walk in that peace that goes beyond understanding, when we walk in that hope and trust and faith, when we walk in that joy that only comes through the righteousness of Messiah, those trials seem to last a lot longer, I mean a lot shorter. But when we revel in the anger of the situation, and we, we revel in the pain and the anguish of everything going on around us, those trials seem to take forever and ever and ever and slowly we start to blame God. Because how could you possibly let me live through this? How could you possibly put me through this? And the Lord's sitting there going, you did it to yourself, you stupid idiot. Just get back in line and everything will be okay. Maybe he doesn't say it that way to you. That's how he says it to me. And he's usually right. I'm, a, I'm an idiot and I mess things up. But, but the Lord's calling us to return back to him. And, and I think it's important that we have this mentality, this, this mentality of, of, of Jacob and of Joseph, this yearning to be restored in the promises of God, to be restored to the eternal promises of God, no matter where we find ourselves in life, no matter the problems we experience, no matter the trials that drop in our laps, we must find ourselves constantly cleaving to the hope of the promises that are awaiting us and ever looking forward to what is coming not simply reveling in the pain and anguish we find ourselves in. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of Messiah's community in Ephesus write, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden men, wrote, I know all about your deeds and your toil and your patient endurance, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves emissaries and are not and have found them to be liars. You have persever perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, verse 4. And I want you to listen to these words because these should be words that kick you below the belt, stomp on your toes, knock the wind out of you as well. But this I have against you, that you have forsaken your first love. Remember then from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your menorah from its place unless you repent. 
Now, clearly, there's an end-time prophetic reality here being spoken, but I want you to understand that the menorah, the nertami, the eternal light, and the tabernacle and temple, the eternal light that is being spoken of here in the heavenlies, this idea is the light that founded all creation, the light of Messiah Yeshua that was there from the very foundations of all creation, the light of Messiah Yeshua that as believers is now residing within us, and if we do not return back to our first love, if we do not have the yearning and hope of Jacob and Joseph to return to the promises of God in full restoration, if we do not live through the, the realities of spiritual Mitzrayim, of the spiritual Egypt and Galut that we find ourselves in, in a way that we show joy, glory, honor, and power to the Holy One, uh, the God of all gods, the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings, the one true and only God who sits on the throne in heaven above and gave His only begotten Son that you and I could have eternal life in His, in his midst and have every reason to have joy and hope. If we don't walk in that in such a way that people see it and believe that we, in fact, have peace that goes beyond understanding, we're going to find ourselves in a situation where the light that is within us is going to go out. And we cannot impact the world around us without the light of Messiah. We cannot impact the world around us without the light of Messiah. We cannot find our way out of Mitzrayim without the presence of the Lord, the light that guides us. We get into the book of Exodus next week, and when we get to the actual leaving of Egypt, we recognize that the cloud of God's glory led, Egypt out, led Israel out of Egypt, but it was the light of his presence that they followed, and that cloud actually lifted when they were at the Yom Suf, the Sea of Reeds. That cloud lifted and resided behind them for a brief period of time, making it pitch black for, for the, the armies of Egypt and nothing but light in front of Israel that they could see where they were going. And you got to understand that light of the presence of the Lord is now ours and within us. And it should be leading us and no matter what the trials and tribulations we find ourselves in here and now, that light is what is leading us. And we've got to cleave to the reality that that light is leading us back to restoration because those trials and tribulations we find ourselves in are not God's fault. They're often ours. Or at the very least, things we've allowed others to put us in. Situations and, and pains and anguish and hurts that we've allowed others to speak over us and to put upon us. We are longing for, hoping for, yearning for the return of Messiah. I believe we live in the days in which we may very well see it happen. If not in my lifetime, in my children's lifetime, but I am fervently uh, alert to the possibility of it being in my lifetime which means it is now more important than ever that we have that heart of Jacob and Joseph with a desire to return back to the promises of the Lord, not to be satisfied and complacent and okay with being here in Mitzrayim and the spiritual land of Egypt, but to be ever yearning to remain steadfastly in the spiritual reality of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. We are not to revel in being a part of the world around us, but we are to live in the world but not be of the world. We are to be separated, righteous, and holy that the world around us wants what we have. Because the days that we are yearning for, the days that are spoken of in Zechariah 14, particularly verse 9, we read each and every week when we do the Elenu in Judaism, uh, the last portion of the Elenu. But these words begin in verse 6. In that day, there will be no light, cold, or frost. It will be a day known only to Adonai, neither day nor night, even in the evening time, there will be light. That light is the light of Messiah, by the way. We read about that in Revelation other places, that that light, that eternal light will provide light day and night uh, constantly because it is the light of Messiah. Verse 8, Moreover, in that day, living waters will flow, maim chaim, 
will flow from Jerusalem, half toward the eastern sea and half toward the western sea, both in the summer and in the winter. Adonai will then be king over all the earth. In that day, Adonai will be Echad, will be one, and his name, Echad, one. This is what we are yearning and hoping for. That is a day in which all of creation, bought by the blood of the Lamb, will reside in the Holy of Holies, in the heavenly Jerusalem that descends upon the earth. That is the day when we will be returned for eternity, whether Jew or Gentile, to Eretz Israel, the heavenly reality of a spiritual Israel. Not just the dirt on this world, world in the land of Israel, but to the heavenly Israel, which that is to point us to at all times. This is what we have hope in. This is what we are yearning for. And like Joseph and like Jacob, we should be constantly making sure that our bones do not rot here in spiritual Israel, in the spiritual land of Egypt, but instead our bones are ever present and the spiritual heir to Israel, the spiritual land of Israel, and the promises and the blessings of God and the salvation which was freely given to us that others may see his work in our lives and desire it. We waste way too much of our lives and our calling as believers being angry at other people, being angry at people who lied to us in the past theologically or lied to us in the past in our families or harmed us in whatever way, this or that or the other, and we spend all of this time wrapped up in this anger that the enemy wants to use to fill space that the Lord wants to fill with his presence. And we are never able to fully walk in the faithfulness of the hope and joy of Messiah Yeshua in our lives. But we've got to now in this day and age that we live in, hand that over to him. We've got to allow the Lord to lead us across the Yom Suf out of slavery to the pain and anguishes of this world, that we can walk in faithfulness to the promises of God that he wants us to live in day in and day out. Don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean life's going to be happy, go lucky, and, and easy across the board. Yeshua tells us, as a matter of fact, and the world's going to hate us because of him. All right? So we got that to look forward to. Woo! That peace that goes beyond all understanding, that hope and joy that we are to revel in, that's something the world around us will never understand until they come to accept Messiah's sacrifice and atonement for their lives. And it's something that as long as you and I walk tied up in the trials and tribulations of this world rather than in faithfulness to what God has in store for us and what God has in fact done for us, as long as we tie ourselves up in that, we are responsible for their not finding Messiah. Just as much as they are responsible for turning their backs on him. Because when the world today looks at us, and you've got to understand, you've heard me talk about this before, we live in what's being called the post-truth era. Which means that most people in the world around us do not believe that there is a such thing as finite truth. Which means what is truth for John may not be truth for me. What is truth for Ryan may not be truth for me. What is truth for Arixi may not be truth for me. But we as believers in Mashiach Yeshua understand that there is only one truth. There is only one way. There is only one salvation. And until we as believers decide that we want to walk in the reality of that truth in a way that the people around us who see straight through the lies and the misery and the disgruntled reality of our lives and go, you know, this crap you're talking about really doesn't add up in your life. How am I supposed to buy into it? 
until we align our lives with the joy and the hope of Messiah, the way God intends for us to live, that's the way that this world around us is going to look at us. And we are doing no justice to the message of Messiah. We are doing no justice to the blood atonement of Messiah, which was given freely for us to share with the world around us. We are doing no justice to the kingdom of God. God has called us. The Great Commission says, Go therefore and make Tamudim disciples of all nations. That's not, an accu- uh, uh, that's not a chore, an assignment given specifically to missionaries or, or to evangelists or to rabbis or, or to, to whatever else, street preachers or whatever. That is a, a command, an ordinance by God given to all of those bought by the blood of Messiah. We have to wake up, people. We have to wake up and get our heads out the sand or other places. We've got to wake up and understand that our lives need to be aligned to the realities of God's faithfulness. Because He is ever faithful. No matter the situation we find ourselves in, He is ever faithful. And He loves you. And He cares for you. And He provides for you. Much like Joseph speaking to his brother, says, you got nothing to fear with me. I understand that God put me in this place. And I will care for you and I will provide for you and I will take care of you. And the Lord says the same to you. I will care for you and I will provide for you and I will take care of you. And it doesn't matter what happens in your life in this world. I am going to take care of you. And we must revel in the reality of his love and faithfulness to us. And we must return in faithfulness to him. And it's time that we decide to have a heart like Jacob and a heart like Joseph who want nothing more than our bones to be restored to the realities of the promises of God in the spiritual promised land of Eretz Israel. It is time that we recognize that our bones are as much a part of that prophecy of Ezekiel of God making the dry bones come forth. He's breathing his breath upon you even now. It's time that we give in and that we give him complete and total control of our lives and we tell the enemy to take a hike Because as long as we're bought by the blood of the Lamb, He has no grounds for authority in our lives except that which you and I give Him. And every ground we give Him in our lives is ground that the Lord does not have reign over because we've not given it to Him. I urge you this morning to take the time to consider the heart of Jacob and the heart of Joseph and the desire to walk and live and reside faithfully forever in the promises of God for his people. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you that your word is living, that your word is ever real and true and tangible, that no matter how many times we read through this book, Genesis through Revelation over and over and over again. No matter how many times we read these words, your words reign true and come to life before us. And you reveal to us more and more and more as we continue on the journey from milk to meat. Father, I pray that you have your way in our lives. Father, I pray for each and every person hearing these words today that our hearts will be humbled before you, that we will in fact fall on our faces in repentance, that we will repent for not giving our lives fully over to you. 
and that we will allow you to make us whole in you again. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen and Amen.